Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to the first Switzer show of 2020. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. Hasn't it been an interesting summer we've had, uh, we've, apart from bushfires, of course, mm. which we're, uh, a lot of people really... Uh, Made a dramatic yeah, yep. Christmas we, break. We don't want to um, make it too, sound too good. Mm. But then, of course, uh, we've had uh, Harry and, and Meghan. Mm. And uh, we've had a... Given ro- up on being royal. Given up on being royal. De-royaled. And we've had a, a, an amazing start to the, uh, stock, the stock market up uh, 5.7% uh, yeah, after 16 or after 19, the first two and a half weeks of, of January. Mm. So It's one of the best starts for a long, long time. I, I think it's probably the best start in uh, in more than 50 years. Now, mm. I, I stand corrected on that, but mm. it, is an, it is. And it comes after... A return last year in the Australian stock market of 23.4%. That includes dividends, but mm. not franking. So with franking plus sort of 25%, mm. even better in the US where their return was something more like about 27, 28%. Mm. So, uh, well, Chris, the, Americans, the bulls are roaring. That's right, but the Americans can't thank Bill Shorten. We actually can thank Bill. We can. Bill. And Bill was actually very good for our returns, wasn't he? He, he is. He, and look, he spectacularly important for our income returns because last year, Peter, but because, yeah. of course, a lot of companies got ahead of the curve, paid dividends, paid special Thinking dividends. Thinking he'd be Prime Minister and kill franking did, credits. Did, yeah. did, special buy, did off-market buybacks and, and so forth. So we had great income returns, great uh, capital returns, and it's 2020s off with a bang Dang. already. Yeah. Now, Paul, I'm sure some people out there are thinking, if the year was so good, 2019, is 2020 going to be a bad one? We had Julia Lee on our uh, Switzer TV investing program, which a lot of people there might not know about. That, that Switzer TV program I used to do on the Sky Business channel is now on a YouTube channel. Channel. So if you go Switzer Financial Group YouTube, you'll find our new TV show. Uh, Julia Lee was on there last night, and she actually said she's done the homework. Um, in something like there's been 26 years where the returns have been like double digit mm-hmm. uh, and in, in probably the last 50 or 60 years or something, and 19 out of the 26 the year after has been a really nice positive return as well. So the, the odds are in our favour that this will be another good year and just about every analyst I've talked to are cautious. They're cautious about 2020, but they are positive. Yeah, I mean, they are positive. There is some, some complacency out there, Peter. Mm. A little bit of uh, – getting a little euphoric as well, which I think is a bit getting a bit cautionary. Mm. And I think there's a pretty much agreed opinion, which worries me a little bit, that mm. uh, 2020 is going to be okay. I mean, it certainly started fantastically. Mm. I think there could be just a couple of uh, bumps along the way. So I'm mm. I'm in the sort of an okay year, Peter, but uh, – 
I wasn't expecting. We always talk about the Santa Claus rally. Mm. I wasn't expecting to see this start in, in January. And uh, was Santa Claus on steroids, wasn't it? It is Santa Claus on steroids. So let's hope that's not the end of it. But yeah. uh, like all things, markets need to take a breather and, they, and pullbacks are inevitable. And we yep. know that's going to yep. happen at some stage. And I think given our intro, uh, the guests that follow are very relevant. We, we kick off with a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rainer Zittelman, who's um, uh, looked at the psychology of the super rich. And you've already brought up Meghan well, and uh, Harry, uh, and they've uh, given up money uh, to uh, so rich. Are Meghan and Harry super rich? They're super rich. They're so rich, they're giving away millions. They don't want to be royals anymore. And they can make a lot more by being, is it Sussex Royal? Is there, Sussex Royals, I think, is a trademark. They could maybe, take it off they, Maybe they do want to, they aren't super rich, and they do want to become super rich, Peter, because that's, of course, uh, it's yeah. hard if you're a royal. I mean, look, obviously, the, 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 the queen or the head of the estate. She's super rich. She's super rich, but I'm not sure that the, the individual members of the family yeah can exactly sort of splash it around. They can't yeah. exactly go out and buy the next Lamborghini or a private jet. Just, you know, no, cause, right. So maybe it's about Harry and Meghan Warney. Yeah, the second time being poorly rich. They're poorly rich. Let's, I, I'm okay. interested to know how do you be super rich, Peter. Could you okay. share that wisdom? No, I tell you what, I'm, I'm very interested to see what Dr. Rainer Zillman has to tell us about the psychology of the super rich, and I'm, I'll make sure that I embrace that psychology. Now, Paul, uh, in case good things happen. Now, uh, we're followed by Percy Allen. Now, Percy, of was the former head of Treasury in New South Wales, and he also does market timing, uh, a report that w we put out um, for subscribers. And Percy's going to look at what he thinks is going to happen to stocks in the next few months, over the year, and across the, the decade. And he's been, been pretty well on the money, hasn't he? He's been very much on the money the last few years. And uh, interestingly, Peter, he's a, the market timing guy is a bullish on gold as well, which mm. is a bit of a... I find that a little strange. But yeah, because usually when you're scared, you go to yep, gold. Yep. Anyway, so we'll see what's going on there. And finally, Malcolm McCarris, that doyen of political elections. He's like really an election I think, analyst, I isn't he? I think the word is physiologist. Is that oh, right? You could be right there too. None <laughs> of our, our listeners know what you're talking about, but it's... Spell, spell for that's, that's a good test. <laughs> yeah, spell. No, that's, that's up to you, Paul. But he wrote a piece on our website and he says Scott Morrison was wrong. Yeah, do you think ScoMo's really handled that badly? Yeah, I think whether objectively he handled it badly is, is up for debate. But in the eyes of the media, he's had an absolute shocker. Mm. And he's going to have to... Um, do a lot of a little, a little bit of rebuilding and personal yeah. brand, I think. Yeah, uh, no doubt. If, no if doubt. you listen to the media. Yeah, and we'll just see whether Malcolm McCarris thinks Scott Morrison's re-election chances have gone down the good. And he's or. the first guy to come out and talk about the next election. Now we yeah. we, we did we Who did say that? at the beginning how much we miss uh, Bill Shorten, but yeah. uh, he's got quite strong views about when the next federal election is going to be held. Yeah. And I'm sure he'll tell us as well because Malcolm loves those sorts of predictions. So that's the show. Without any further ado, let's go and talk to Dr. Raina Zittelman about the psychology of the super rich. So joining me on the program is Dr. Rainer Zillman. He is a German historian, sociologist, real estate expert, and internationally renowned author. Now, Dr. Zittelman has looked at the psychology of the super rich, and so we want to find out what drives the super rich. Thanks for joining us, Rainer. Yeah, thank you. So why don't you give us an idea of the common traits of the super rich? 
Maybe uh, before we speak about the common traits in detail, let's start uh, to tell you a little bit about my my research. Uh, there are a lot of uh, books about how to become rich, so-called self-help books, but there are almost no or only very few scientific studies about it. And uh, my, my study is one of the first scientific studies, and I wanted to find out whether there's a correlation between the personality traits of rich people on the one hand and their financial success in life on the on the other hand. And uh, to, to start with this, of course, not all rich people are the same, like not all poor people uh, are uh, the same. This is true on the one hand, but on the on the other hand, you will find some common patterns. Uh, and uh, I conducted interviews um, uh, with uh, 45 uh, super rich people. Most of them were uh, self-made and they had a net worth, most of them between 30 million and 1 billion euro. And in the end, I had uh, 1,700 uh, pages with uh, transcriptions and I I analyzed to find out these common patterns and maybe we can speak, uh, and yes, and as well, I, I have to add this, every one of them completed a, a psychological test, the so-called big, uh, big five uh, test. And uh, uh, maybe we can speak now more a little bit in, in detail about their biography and about their their common traits, but I think this was important to, to mention yeah, first, no, uh, about the methodology of the study. Yeah, without a doubt. So, so why don't you give us the standout traits, the common traits that was you know, obvious in most of the people? I, I presume there were some outliers in the group, but what were the, the common standout traits of this group? Um, first of all, one of the key findings was that um, super rich are frequently nonconformist. So, what I mean with this, they enjoy swimming against the uh, the stream, and they have no problem uh, contradicting prevailing uh, opinion. Uh, this is a very important point, and I think it's logical. If you do the same thing like everyone else, you will get no other results like. Mm. Uh, like anyone else. Uh, I can give you a funny example of uh, one of the richest of my interviewers. He's a, a self-made uh, billionaire and he earned his money with milk and with yogurt. And so it's no surprise his favorite animals are cows. And he gave me this funny examples to, to, to show what I'm talking about. There's a there's a path, and on this path are 100 cows walking. And on the left side, there's a very lush field, very green field with a lot of grass. And on the right hand, there's an, on the right side, there's another field that is not as near as lush as the field on the left side. And uh, there are only some grams of grass left. And what happens there? 99 out of this 100 cows go to the left side and only one cow goes to the right side and and but but of course what happens the grass on the left side is eaten very quickly mm. and this one cow went to the right side this cow eats and eats and eats while on the other side uh, there's uh, no no grass and it was a funny example but he told me I'm the cow who goes on the right side and this is one mm. very important 
that you even enjoy swimming against uh, the stream. Uh, if you do, I think it's logical. If you do the same thing like everyone else, uh, you will not grow rich. Okay, so that's one trait. What's another one that stood out to you? Yes, um, there's um, one very important thing is how they deal with uh, setbacks and with crisis. Uh, because uh, every one of them had in their career serious uh, crisis setbacks. And um, for most of the people, it's this way. If they are successful, if they succeed, they take responsibility for success. But if they fail, they blame others. This is for the... the the attitude of the majority of the people, if they were bad at school, it was the teacher's fault. If they uh, don't make no progress in their in their company, it's the fault of their boss of the company, or they blame maybe capitalism or the society or wh whatever. With this rich people, they think much different. They look always for the reason for crisis and setbacks only in themselves. Even if the market develop in another direction than expected in the in a wrong direction they don't blame the market but they they tell me it was me who who misjudged the market and this attitude to take responsibility not only for your success but as well for failure for setbacks this gave them the feeling of of power because if it is me then I can change it. And it's a different attitude to to most uh, of, of the other uh, people. And so I guess they would have said to you that they learnt more out of their mistakes than their success? Fun? I, I, I didn't get it. Uh, did, did, they, did they make the observation? Because one thing I've, I've noticed over the years when I've interviewed entrepreneurs that they say that they have learnt more from their failures than they have from their success. Yes, uh, absolutely. And another important point, this is true, I want to add that um, I, I asked them how they make that decision. You know, every one of us, we may, if we make a decision, we can uh, analyze uh, things, um, uh, but um, we can, sometimes we, we use as well our gut feeling, our intuition. And I, I asked them what is more important for them. And uh, this was uh, one very important result that most of them explained to me that gut feeling is much more important than analysis. Uh, and um, uh, you have to understand what, what, what gut feeling means. Uh, some people think that is, it is something uh, irrational or, or even mystical, but this is not true. Gut feeling or intuition uh, is the same what we call in psychology implicit knowledge. And implicit knowledge is a um, result of implicit learning. And this was one of the results of the study, for example. I asked them uh, how they, how, how were their performance at school or university. And there was absolutely no correlation between their performance at school or university on the one hand and their financial success on the other hand. So it was not so important what they learned at school or university or their performance there, but much more important were things that they learned outside school, alongside 
that school is uh, uh, to, to mention two two important points half of them were competitive athletes this uh this, so as competitive athletes in sports they learned how to deal with uh, victory but much more important how to deal with uh, defeats and another very important thing was when i asked them how they earned money alongside school it was very different from most of the other people for example when i was young most of the students they earned uh, money uh, with an, an hourly wage maybe as a taxi driver or or even in a factory or to work in a restaurant but uh, it was completely different with the super rich uh, people in their youth alongside school outside school they made early entrepreneurial experience especially in sales they sold so many uh, different things they had so many fantasy what to sell and this early entrepreneurial experience mm. and um, what i mentioned before their experience in, in uh, as competitive athletes were much more much more important than book wisdom and i call it implicit learning experience that results in implicit knowledge or another word intuition and gut feeling and so this is the reason why uh, most of them stated that uh, gut feeling uh, was uh, much more important for them than to to analyze things mm. did you find that they were naturally inclined to be comfortable taking risks Yes, absolutely. I, I I asked every one of them about a risk scale. For example, if you very risk averse, it's minus five. Mm -hmm. If you're neutral, it's zero. And if you are prepared to take a lot of risk, it's plus five. And most of them, uh, if I ask them on this scale, uh, where are you between minus five and plus five, most of them were uh, between plus three and plus five. Mm. This is true on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, what's very important as well, throughout their lifetime, they reduced usually their risk profile. And um, you have to understand that um, maybe there are other uh, rich people who didn't reduce their risk profile during their life, but then they they became they they, they lost their wealth. And uh, because I spoke only with the uh, with the rich people who were successful. Yeah. Uh, in terms of methodology, there's something that you call a survival uh, bias. And uh, so you always have to keep in mind that there are others who did not succeed. And uh, th so they, they were not uh, interviews. I didn't spoke, I only spoke with the, with the winners. Mm. But for them, it was very important not only to take risk, maybe in the early stage when they founded their company, but to reduce their risk profile later on in life. Mm. So if you had to give advice to parents who'd love to think that their children one day would become super rich, what, what would you be telling those parents to do? I think one important aspect is that they don't look only 
at what uh, about the um, a school or, or university because most of the uh, parents tell their children uh, you have to be good at school and university and all your success in life later depends uh, about your grades at at school and so and, and this is absolutely not true um, they they should encourage their children to make other experience outside school, like it, uh, for example, uh, to encourage them to make early entrepreneurial experience like this uh, uh, rich uh, people did. Because these uh, experience that I called um, implicit learning processes and that will uh, result in this uh, implicit knowledge that is so important uh, to become rich is much more important than book book wisdom and most of the parents they make the mistake they only look what what are they how how do they do it school and and university Mm -hmm. and they don't understand that maybe the experience alongside school or outside school are much more important for the future life of their children than what they learn at school or university. So, Raina, looking at the group that you looked at, what percentage had parents who were entrepreneurial as well and maybe they picked up the demonstration effect? Yes, this this is interesting because... Um, because first of all, most of the parents were not rich. They were not poor, and they had no uh, working class background, but most of them were uh, middle class. But on the other hand, six out of ten were self-employed. And uh, if you compare it here in uh, Germany with the percentage uh, in the uh, population, uh, in the population as a whole, it's only six percent of people here who are self-employed. So it's ten times more. And this is striking uh, because um, I think it's it's very important that they saw in their parents a, a role model, not how to become rich, but to be their own. Boss to 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 become entrepreneur and to become self-employed mm. because this is a very sad thing that usually at school on and even at university even if you if you study uh, economics or for MBA you are not prepared to to found your own company or to be self-employed but uh, usually at school they they. Uh, they, most of the teachers, they, they don't know this world of uh, self-employed people because they were all of their life uh, uh, civil servants or employees themselves. Mm. And so um, uh, I, I think for the, this rich people, they saw their parents in this way as a role model that there's an alternative to become a civil servant or to become an employee that you can found your uh, own company, you found your your own business, and uh, I think this is the, the the reason why why so many of them were self employed. Yeah. Now, Raina, if people want to learn more about what you discovered, is there a website or a book where the, this information will be? Yes, yeah, sure. There, there, there are the the title of the book is the Wealth Elite. You can find it on on uh, Amazon if you Google my name, Rainer uh, Seidelman, and uh, the well the Wealth Elite. There you can find all the information. And there's another 
book. Maybe we can speak about it next time. It was uh, just uh, published uh, some uh, some weeks ago, and the title is Dead with Different and Grow Rich, The Secret of Self-Made People. The first book, The Wealth Elite, it was my second doctoral thesis, so it's a, it's a scientific book. I think it's easier to read than most uh, other doctoral theses, but uh, it is a, a scientific book. And the other book, Dare to be Different and Grow Rich, it's a much uh, more popular written book, and I did something similar in this other book. I, I uh, for for this uh, second book, I I didn't contact uh, I conducted not so many interviews, but I analyzed the biographies uh, from um, fifty very very successful people, and the same question to find out what do they have in common. So you see, it's not only for this one book, it's always this question that is very interesting for me. Uh, what distinguishes very successful people from uh, all of the others who are uh, not so successful? Yeah, Rainer, fantastic. Thanks for joining us on the program and good luck with the book. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. And that was Dr. Rainer Zittelman telling us about the psychology of the super rich. And if you want to be super rich, Paul, I reckon a good start would be to go to our strategy days, our investor strategy days, which are coming up. Tell us about them. Yeah, this is our Switzerland investor strategy day, Peter. Probably the big one of the year where we really try to get behind the issues that are going to make 2020, drive the markets in 2020, and help you with with the right ideas how you can position your portfolio, whatever your your risk appetite is really to make the most of that. So mm. we know that, uh, look, we're all trying to do as much as we can with our investment portfolios, but there's a lot coming up in 2020. We've got, uh, it's it's coming into the 12th year mm. of a bull market. You know, the question is, Mark, is can that continue? Mm. How far might it go? What would be the turning points? We've got a US election. Uh, a lot of interesting things, including a lot of increased volatility happening in U.S. election years. So what does that mean for the market? And at home, some, you know, ultra-low interest rates. So how do you get the most out of those investments? And uh, mm. we'll have some of the, 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 the leading fund managers and other investment experts at our Investor Strategy Day to help you know, share as much of their insights and mm. some of the things they're looking at, and you can use that in terms of uh, how you position your portfolio. Yeah. And, that, and you might also discover some investment products and funds that might give you the diversification you need. A lot of people might be good at buying their own stocks but might not be strong buying overseas. There will be those sorts of And that's a question there. a lot of people have, Peter, is how do you get the balance? I mean, a lot of that, I get that question all the time. Mm. You know, what's the balance between investing onshore and offshore? Mm. We'll try to flesh that out as well. So this is a save the date uh, yeah. advertisement. So give I, us the date, Paul. So, uh, so put these dates into your diary now. You'll be able to uh, go online and, and reserve your seats from next Monday. Yeah. So Sydney, Tuesday, the 17th of March, Melbourne, Tuesday, the 24th of March, and Wednesday, the 25th of March. And we'll be going to Adelaide and Perth in May, Peter, for a, for a special type of event to make sure that we uh, yeah. don't leave our subscribers out there. So, yeah, well, uh, a lot of people from uh, Adelaide and Perth have complained that we haven't gone there before. So this year? But I'll come back to those dates, but, but they're in our calendar. So Tuesday, the 17th of March, Sydney, Tuesday, the 24th of March, Melbourne. Wednesday, the 25th of March, Brisbane. Save the date for the Switzer Investor Strategy Day. Our next guest on the program is Percy Allen, who's the editor of Market Timing Australia and a contributor to the Switzer Report. And he's recently written a piece 
called What Might the Stock Market Do in the New Decade? But he's taken it more than just the next decade. He looked at it from the point of view of you know, the next few months, the rest of the year, and then the decade. Per- Percy, thanks for joining us. Welcome. All right, now, mate, um, it's always difficult to uh, make predictions about where markets are going, but that's what you actually try to do in Market Timing Australia. Um, well, normally we're just trend followers and momentum followers, and that's what I do. But being the festive season, and given that forecasting is a, a fool's errand, I decided to be a bit frivolous and try to have a stab at what things might look at over the next few months and the year and then the decade. Yep. I'll no doubt get this completely wrong, but I thought it'd be a useful exercise to at least uh, touch on what are the known unknowns. <laughs> Okay, well, Percy, I've got to say, I confidently tipped uh, that we would get to 7,000 in 2019. Just missed it by a couple of months. But I do have to say, I confidently predicted in 2018 that we'd get to 7,000 as well. So you're right, forecasting is difficult. But as long as you get the direction and the trend right, that makes me pretty well happy. So let's kick off. Your outlook for stocks and gold for the next few months. Um, I think we're going to get a pullback. Um, When one looks at the S&P 500, and I look at that a lot because it's more than half of the world's stock market, it does set the direction of markets globally. Um, It is very, very overstretched. It's more than what's called two standard deviations uh, above its 200-week long-term trend line. And... um, when it gets right into that third deviation territory, uh, it's it's rather rare. So I think there will be a pullback of up to ten percent. Um, and uh, but having said that, uh, there are extreme uh, financial condition easing at present. And as you know, um, Iran, China, and Brexit have receded as threats. And the period from October to May is very strong for shares. But I do think there will be a pullback. It's just uh, overstretched at present for the next few months. So putting that in context, Percy, we're currently about 3,300-odd-ish on the uh, US S&P. So that would take it back to, you know, if you say 10%, sort of circa 3,000. Oh, look, anything between 5 and 10 is a sort of pullback. I don't think it'll be a correction over this period. You know, I could be wrong, but because I think the expansion of liquidity in America, which is the strongest since the GFC, the last four months have been the strongest since the GFC, even though it's not called QE, it's called repo purchases. Uh, it's been very, very strong. And um, and we and we'll talk a little bit more about going into the full year. But let's, so let's just take that out. Let's assume we do get a pullback. Where do you? Uh, we're in the foolish season of predictions. Where do you uh, predict it will finish at the end of twenty twenty? Well, I think twenty uh, twenty could be the year of irrational exuberance. I, I think we're in the last leg of the long bull market the longest uh, cyclical bull market known. I mean, it's gone for 11 years. You normally get crashes every three and a half years. We haven't had one. We got close to one at the end of 2018. In America, it was just a whisker off 20%, but it wasn't a crash. Um, I I have a feeling that this could be quite a year of irrational exuberance. Um, And so I think the market will actually end up. It could be up 10% 10% or so. I mean, there'll be a pullback. I think there could be a correction during the year as well. But um, so if it came out of a correction, it could be up 30% from the bottom of a correction. Um, 
But um, the reason I think the year could be one of the irrational exuberance is that it is a presidential year, and I don't think the Fed's going to pull the rug on the share market in a presidential year. It's providing a lot of liquidity. Uh, it's been cutting interest rates. Also, the US government's running trillion-dollar-plus deficits, um, and I think Trump is no member of the Tea Party. He's a big spender, and he's not going to spend down. And then central banks around the world have given up on normalising interest rates. So there's a whole lot of momentum there that's... Uh, I think pushing for a year of possibly irrational exuberance after we've had a pullback early on and then possibly a correction in those usual down months of May to October. But I think by year's end, it will have gone up very strongly. Um, what happens the year after them is, is, is something we can talk about for the whole decade. Yep. Uh, the only thing that's a dampener on all this is that the leading economic indicators from the OECD shows the US and the OECD have all been declining, but they look like they're bottoming now. That's why the market's getting optimistic about that turning. But corporate borrowings in America are falling, and corporate borrowings are what have held up the stock market. They've been into share buybacks. That's been the biggest factor. But I think what's happening now is the retail and other institutions are stepping in uh, because of the irrational exuberance. <laughs> and so I still think... Um, that we will get that last flurry, and often the last leg of a bull market is the most profitable, so mm. people don't want to miss out. Yeah, now, Percy, you've looked at uh, in your piece uh, market, optimism, op market optimism readings and complacency indicators. What are they yeah. telling you? Well, they're telling that the market's at an extreme of investor complacency. Um, I mean, the um, the the spread now between junk bonds and government bonds has virtually disappeared. It's down to, you know, to 30 basis points or something. Uh, people are chasing yield for anything. And, um, uh, and so uh, also if you look at the put and um, uh, the put options, um, uh, that ratio as well, um, the amount of insurance being taken out in the share market for a crash is, is very, very low. It's almost historically low. So people have thrown uh, risk aside, um, institutions have, no one wants to miss out, and there's a stampede into shares. Uh, we, you know, I know you looked at seasonal patterns, um, and you also looked at the presidential cycle, but also there's that one seasonal um, oddity that actually happens quite a lot and it's summed up in selling May and go away, come back on St Ledger's Day. Do you think that's the kind of thing we might see this year, a bit of a sell-off around May with all the election electioneering and whatever, then after the election result you might see a rebound in the stock market? Yes. Uh, yes, that's what I do refer to in the article and um, I mentioned earlier how at present, we're uh, benefiting from that October to May period, which is strong for shares. Uh, I, I think you're right. Between May and October, which are normally the sort of winter month for shares, not the summer month, um, and um, that if there is a correction, it could happen during that period. Some black, or as they say, even now green swan event could arrive that um, shakes the market. But I still think the liquidity they're throwing at it and also the fiscal spending, a lot of governments are now going to get into that. Um, 
uh, will keep the momentum going for most of the year. So there could be a bit of a shock. You're quite right in that period. And um, Percy, let's let's bring it back to Australia. And of course, we do tend to pay, yeah. follow the leader. Where do you yeah. see better value, the Australian market or the US market at the moment? Well, overall, the Australian market. Uh, our PEs, uh, our PE, I think at present is around 17. That's on a trailing basis. Uh, in America, the S&P is uh, presently standing at 26 uh, on a trailing basis. The NASDAQ's on 29 and the Russell 2000's on 40 which is unbelievable. Now, normally the PEs in America average around 17. I think in Australia around 15, although some will say post-war 17. Um, the reality is that uh, the Australian market is probably a bit overvalued overall compared to its 15. The American market is way overvalued compared to its uh, normal 17. Um, Look, having said that, the problem in the Australian market, and it's, uh, I think, JP Morgan this morning in the Fin Review, there's a large article, is saying, look, if you take out finance and materials mm-hmm. in the Australian stock market, and they're looking at forward PEs, mm-hmm. but it's sitting at 27, it's the most expensive market in the world, while finance and uh, materials are looking pretty cheap. So within Australia, clearly finance and materials are looking cheap. The rest of the market is looking very expensive. Um Yep. And, and so, but you're also, uh, if I could just get it right, so just trying to sum up where you're at. So both markets, you're okay with both markets in the next 12 months, but obviously a correction uh, in issue in the US because it's overbought, and, you, and I guess that would flow through into Australia. But you're also bullish yep. gold. So just explain that one to us, because normally well, you like stocks, um, you don't like gold. So I'm just trying to understand <laughs> that. Uh, look, I'm, I've got to say, uh, the strategies in market timing are not my opinions. They're simply driven by a computer, which we've built to capture trends and momentum. Um, and they're short-term, tre- well, they're medium-term trends and momentum, but they're really what one does now. And uh, what it's saying is the conservative strategy, which is largely a trend model, it has some momentum in it. But uh, the trend model's really saying everything's okay in Australia. The, the market's well above its long-term trend and it would only go to sell if it fell below that trend. Uh, with our momentum models, which look at both world sectors and uh, Australian sectors, it's saying in both cases, um, go in gold, simply because the momentum for gold in the last nine months um, uh, has been stronger than that for any other sectors, the US market, the European market or the emerging markets. Uh, in Australia, gold has been stronger than the finance, uh, the real estate or the, the mineral sector. So for that reason, both of those models are saying, look, stick with gold for the moment because um, uh, they're the safest bets. Um, so on trend, um, the market's very strong, but on momentum, um, gold uh, is still in front. And the reason we chose nine months is we did a lot of back testing on ETFs and that was the sweet spot. Um, nine months. So, is it, just trying to explain it for people listening. I mean, I, and I appreciate you're looking at, at it's not your forecast, it's, it's effectively the, your trend yeah. analysis, but just trying yeah. to rationalise why we've got almost sort of euphoric conditions in the equities market, but we've also got a lot of euphoria yeah. around gold. Is that because all this liquidity and people are sort of having a bit of a 50 50 bet? They like equities, but they're worried there could be some implosion or something around. Mm. Debt or, or uh, liquidity is that? And it's also of, the end yeah, of, of, of yeah. a bull market cycle looming, Paul. I guess is, is that what's driving it. 
Um, I think one – look, I've been trying to get to the bottom of this like everybody else, and the most plausible explanation I've heard is simply that the cost of money now is so low and bond rates are, the, are so low, so it's almost become a new refuge for investors who are saying, well, why invest in a bond or in cash? Cash can be manipulated by central banks. Bonds are being sold by uh, by governments and corporations as if they're going out of style. They don't care how many they mm-hmm. issue. Yet it's very hard to produce gold. It's the one remaining currency, if you like, that governments can't easily manipulate. So I think a number of portfolios are moving into gold, saying uh, we don't know where the bond market's going to go. We don't know where what's going to happen with, uh, you know, well, you can't get any money out of them anyway, and they're being manipulated. So it's perhaps the safest of the... Um, of the defensive assets. Mm. And that's what I suspect is happening, that it's become a substitute for bonds and cash. Mm. Uh, It may not be that there's a huge demand, you know, towards gold. It's more a reallocation of assets within a defensive portfolio, more towards gold and out of bonds and um, out of cash. Yeah, and I guess it's fair to say it's an insurance play as you get towards the end of a cycle. And as you've alluded to, we are running out of time, mate. So as you alluded to, 2020, you're comfortable, but maybe 2021, you might be getting a little uncomfortable about being in stocks. Yeah. And longer term, Peter, if I could just mm. say this, um, I think in the decade ahead, um, the American market has problems. It's so overvalued, something's going to happen with it. Mm. The rest of the world isn't necessarily overvalued except for certain sectors, as we talked about in Australia. Um so I think the next decade is going to be a pretty poor one for America and pretty good for the rest of the world, um, simply because America is so um, overstretched mm. and um, crashes do always happen and they're going to happen at some stage. But I think it'll affect America more than others. It'll probably affect the IT sector most, a little bit like a repeat of the dot-com bust, even though the IT companies are much more solidly based now. But... Um, uh, I do think in the next decade, returns in America are going to be pretty low, but they're going to be reasonable in other places. Yeah. Percy, thanks for joining us, mate. All the best. And that was Percy Allen from markettiming.com.au. Paul, why don't you tell our listeners about Market Timing? Yeah, look, it's a weekly publication, Peter, that uh, tracks markets and, as Percy was explaining, uses both uh, short-term and long-term momentum signals. We look at uh, sort of three basic areas. We look at the Australian stock market. We look at a, a sector rotational strategy and we get a worldview and it comes up with uh, trading signals. So those trading signals don't change that much, but when they do, you'll be the first to know. So mm. Percy publishes this on, on, a, on Sunday. a Sunday morning mm. after analysing all the data over the weekend. Uh, worldwide. Worldwide, so that uh, you'll have the signal before the market's open on Monday. And it's it, it gives, you know, it, it's it's... It's signals to go and buy the market or buy gold or sell this. Mm. These are long-term signals, but they, of course, they change. And uh, and we have a lot of people who follow um, Percy's um, mm. analysis analysis and his trading signals. So and it's more relevant as you get towards the end of a bull market, Paul, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's relevant. I mean, I think we all know that markets trend. And so it's really about turning points in trends mm. and momentum that you're looking for. Yep. You know, they're not always right, Peter, but no. the track record, in fact, this was rated, Market Timing Australia, which, of course, is Percy's publication, was rated, I think, last year or the year before, the number one market timing publication in the world for accuracy. So mm. uh, it's, it's got some big followers. So yeah. it's Market Timing Australia, all one word, Market Timing Australia. 
www.ipsocialcapital.com.au. Our next guest is Malcolm McCarris, um, one of the country's, I call him the, the doyen of political electioneering and analysis. And he's a, he's a writer on our website, and I always love to read what he's thinking about politics in Australia. And uh, in the most recent one, he wrote a piece which we headlined uh, something like, um, Why Scott Morrison is Wrong, or words to that effect. Now, Malcolm, you've been quoted in, on our website uh, predicting that Scott Morrison would win the next election. Um, has what he's done wrong changed your view on that? Well, I'm not so. I'm not sure. I would actually say I'm predicting he's winning the next election. I'd just say that historical precedents, to the extent that they exist, do suggest that he would win the next election, and I inclined to think that that is the case. So in the case of the current situation, um, Scott Morrison has behaved well. I mean, his prime ministership for the last six weeks has been very, very poor. Mm. But the point is, it's something like two years to the next election. And it's not at all surprising if people expect him to recover, which I think is the general expectation. There is a general expectation that he will recover from this bad period of perhaps six weeks because there's plenty of time to go. So, Malcolm, maybe we can start by just, uh, if you could just set out your thinking as to why you think he's performed poorly over the last six weeks. Well, his handling of the bushfires has been very poor. His holiday to Hawaii was um, very poor judgment. Um his narrative on climate change and the bushfires is not satisfactory. Um, he's had various bad incidents like visiting Cabago and having people refusing to shake his hand. Opinion polls show that his personal um, approval has declined quite substantially. But the interesting thing is that although his personal approval ratings have declined really remarkably greatly, the party vote has, interestingly enough, not suffered particularly at all. In fact, the first preference coalition vote has only dropped by 2% in this period, and the two-party preferred has dropped by 3%. Well, that's not... That is a surprisingly good coalition vote, given the, the Prime Minister's approval ratings have declined so badly. Mm. Malcolm, has climate change as a political issue because of the bushfires, become a prominent and huge issue for the next election? Well, that's difficult to answer, but I would say probably not. But since the election is likely to be late next year or early the following year, I'm not sure that I could really tell at this stage. I'd just say that um, it seems to me that the government is actually travelling reasonably well in that argument in terms of presenting its view to the public and when alternative views are presented, it has been able, generally speaking, to demonstrate that actually it is doing enough in that area. 
as far as the public perception is concerned, I think the government's position is reasonably strong. Do you think that the only way you can disassociate bushfires from climate change as a political issue is for the government to show that they're putting an enormous amount of resources into fighting bushfires? Well, they are doing that, aren't they? Yeah, that's what I mean, they are doing that, yeah. and they are obviously hoping that the next summer will be not beset by the problems of this current summer. Now, I can't predict whether that will be the case or not, but uh, my guess is that next summer will not be particularly bad and will not be perceived to be particularly bad. And when that is the case... Um, that means the government's position would look rather better than otherwise would be the case. So now, the other question, of course, also is whether the election election is going to be in May 2022 or whether it's going to be in November 2021. Now, if it's in May 2022, it may well be that two summers will have to be passing before people can make a judgment. And I think that's an interesting question myself because I continue to believe that the election will be in November next year purely on the basis that that's the period when elections are almost always held. Doesn't that present some uh, challenges around the Senate if you go in uh, November, uh, Senate half election, Malcolm, uh, if you go in, in, in November 2021? No, the House of Representatives plus half Senate election must take place no earlier than August 2021. Right. And no later than May 2022. Okay. It's a House representative plus House an election. But the point is, the interesting thing is that the date of the expiry of Senator's term, which is the 30th of June, mm -hmm. was intended by those who wrote those words to create May as the normal election month. But that's not the way it's worked out. In fact, We've only had two recent, in inverted commas, May reps half Senate elections, and the two recent cases are May 1917 and May 2019. Those are the two most recent cases of a May House of Representatives plus half Senate election. Mm. So the, prob the historical probability is that he will find some argument, which will sound quite a good argument, to have the election in November next year because it doesn't affect the Senate and House representatives being in kilter. Those elections are in kilter anyway. So, therefore, we don't yet know, do we? Mm. Will there be one summer passing between now and the next election or two? Yes. I don't know the answer to the yeah. question. It's certainly a big issue nowadays since the bushfires of this Christmas. Now, Malcolm, you kind of drew some parallels between Donald Trump and mass shootings and Scott Morrison and the, the handling of issues around bushfires and climate change. Would you like to talk to that? Well, what I'm saying is uh, Donald Trump handles mass shootings by basically saying... Uh, let's not talk about this subject while we're grieving. And then the grieving goes, it finishes, and then he pretends as though nothing has happened. Well, I think Scott Morrison is doing the same with climate change. That is, you know, let's now talk about what we're doing to help 
those people who've been badly affected by it. Um, that's what we do now. And then when, once the summers have passed, once this current summer passes, then um, they won't, the government won't be in the difficult position which it's currently in. Okay. The, 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 the current position is not all that difficult for the government. That's the funny thing because with this dramatic uh, disapproval increase for Scott Morrison personally, it has made remarkably little difference mm. to the either two-party preferred vote or the first preference vote for the coalition or Labor, that matter. So that's why I would be inclined still to say that the historical precedent would seem to me to suggest that Morrison will get another election win. Okay. Now, the, the letter to the editor in The Australian that you referred to, the writer kind of implied that this doesn't happen to Labor leaders. It's always the kind of treatment that a, a conservative leader cops, and particularly, I think, in the age of social media and Twitter and all that sort of stuff, which is generally driven by more left-wing-leaning uh, political commentators. Do you think that is a, a, an issue that has made Morrison look worse than he really is on the subject? Um, in the short term, I think that is the case. But uh, my point is, Gladys Berejiklian hasn't received any of this criticism, has she? No. Malcolm McCarris, thanks for joining us on the program. Well, thank you very much. All right, Paul, what do you think about Malcolm's view? Look, I think Malcolm's largely right, Pete. I think the media was pretty tough on ScoMo, but you can't argue with the polls. I think the interesting thing about Malcolm was being uh, the prediction for a November 2021 election. Mm. Avoiding, avoiding too many summers. Yeah, it's not that far along yeah. when you think about it. So it's probably not a factor for the markets in 2020, but mm. something will have to factor in, into 2021. So mm. uh, write that one down in your diary. Yeah. I, I would say if the, if the government throws a lot of money at the bushfire repair that could actually boom the economy for 12 mm. months or so, and that could be a big encouragement to go early. And, and I'm not sure. that I, th I think there has been a bit of a sea change on climate change. Um, mm, oh, most definitely. And I don't yeah. think Malcolm's right on that. So the question is whether that's going to continue. And uh, look, if, if, it's if, not going to go away. If, I don't think it's going to go away, Peter. I, I think the public is sort of mm. is over this now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Morrison's going to have to come up with a plan to deal yeah. with it. Right? And, and a, a Deloitte survey said worldwide CEOs, 54% think that climate change has become a key focus issue. But apparently in Australia, the number was like 80% of CEOs. So clearly CEOs have changed their attitudes since uh, and, the bushfires. And, and we've had that warning from... Uh, about uh, some people, the IMF and others, talking about central banks might need to think about... Uh, buying well, coal mines. Well, not so much buying coal mines, but, but potentially about the, the challenges if there's an exit of investment uh, yeah. in, uh, in those type of industries. Yep. You know, um, you know it's, 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 a, it's an issue which, whether you like, believe it or not, ain't going away, I don't think. No, exactly right. Paul, thanks for joining us. That's the show for this week. We look forward to seeing you and talking to you next week. Thank you.